Hello, everybody. Welcome to Random Trek Book Review. It's the podcast where we read, analyze, and review a not-so-randomly selected Star Trek book or novel. My name is Andrew, and I will be flying solo for this edition of RTBR, as my good buddy Matt is conveniently on a mission that will take exactly as long as this podcast. Uh, Of course, there's no callbacks for this uh, episode, as it's a book episode, but if you didn't see Matt's review of A Stitch in Time from a few weeks back, I highly, highly recommend it. Uh, This week, I will be looking at the Star Trek Discovery book, The Enterprise War. It's the fifth book in the series. It was released back on July the 30th, 2019. Uh, The cover uh, has the 1701 Enterprise on it, which um, actually looks really cool, but it kind of bothers the OCD in me. Um, If you have been kind of following along, the first one had Michael Burnham on it. Uh, The most recent ones had Sylvia Tilly and uh, Saru on them. Um, And then there was the one where we had uh, Lorca and Giorgio on it. Uh, So we've had this kind of constant repeating thing where it was a character on it, and then this one they went with a ship. It's not the worst thing in the world, but it does kind of bother me a little bit. Um, We do get Pike and Number One and Spock on the back, but I kind of wish they had flip-reversed it and put those three on the front of the cover and then put the ship on the back. It doesn't really make sense for the story, but... um, I don't know. When I have all them lined up in in a row, I kind of would have preferred to see just kind of that character continuation happening. Um, This one was written by John Jackson Miller, and the audiobook was narrated by Robert Petkoff. Um, This will be a spoiler-filled critique, so if you haven't yet read this one, then make sure that uh, you go to your local library or uh, to bookstore and pick it up. Um, The back cover synopsis, which is not really that much of a spoiler, says this. A shattered ship, a divided crew, trapped in the infernal nightmare of conflict. Hearing of the outbreak of hostilities between the United Federation of Planets and the Klingon Empire, Captain Christopher Pike attempts to bring the USS Enterprise home to join in the fight. But in the hellish nebula known as the Paragumum, the stalwart commander instead finds an epic battle of his own, pitting ancient enemies against one another, with not just the Enterprise, but her crew as the spoils of war. Lost and out of contact with Earth for an entire year, Pike and his trusted first officer, number one, struggle to find the reunite the ship's crew. All while science officer Spock confronts a mystery that puts even his exceptional skills to the test, with more than their own survival possibly riding on the outcome. All right, as we'd like to do, I'll give you just kind of my overall impression of the book and kind of talk about how easy it was to read. This one's pretty good. Um, I think if you can get through the first 100 pages or so, then it's, you know, a down downhill slide from there. I found that I picked this one up and put this one down a lot, and then I just kind of took a day, day and a half, and just powered through it. I mean, like I said, once you get past that first 100 pages, I, I think that it really picks up, and it's a pretty engaging read. One of the odd choices that the author made was that there is a lot of short chapters. I think there's like 70 in total, and that means that some of the chapters are literally a page, page and a half. 
So if you're one of those people that likes to kind of read a chapter before bed, this would take a long time to read. I, I don't really think that it adds too much, um, and I think that there is a part of it that kind of makes it feel somewhat truncated. It bounces around between the different characters and the different stories, but it's hard to kind of get any kind of flow going. The book is also broken up into several larger chunks as the course of the year goes by. Uh, they are broken up into prologue, detonation, infiltration, separation, capitulation, obligation, and then the epilogue. Basically, this is how they tie the whole Star Trek Discovery thing into this particular book because every time you get a new section, there's usually a message from Starfleet Command which kind of talks about what's happening with the Star Trek Discovery Season 1 storyline. Uh, so, you know, the Klingon War and everything. It's okay, I guess. Um, I don't really know that it was necessary. And I guess it does kind of allow for little jumps in time because this book does take place over a long period of time. All right, before we jump into the plot, let's talk a little bit about uh, the elephant in the room, which is that there is no Star Trek Discovery characters in this book. They are mentioned a couple of times, but I think that it's pretty clear that after the second season of Star Trek Discovery, uh, a lot of fans were really happy with the Pike and the Spock and the number one character, and so they decided to do a book that was based on those particular characters and what they were up to during the first season of Star Trek Discovery. Um, it definitely feels like the modern era of those characters. I definitely didn't see Shatner and Leonard Nimoy in my mind, Major Barrett as well. Um, I was thinking about uh, all the more modern characters. And not that that's a bad thing, it's just that this feels like it's firmly set in that universe. So they did do a good job uh, with that. The book starts off with a prologue that uh, deals with a young pike. He's caving with some friends on Earth. There is an earthquake or some sort of accident where uh, some boulders cave in and his friend Hondo um, gets trapped and Pike is kind of at a loss what to do. He notifies the authorities and tries to, you know get down to them and save them. Of course, the rocks are so thick that they can't use transporters or anything like that, and Hondo uh, doesn't make it. Now, this doesn't really come up again in the book, which is a little bit of a disappointment. Uh, it's mentioned a couple of times, and there's a couple scenarios where uh, the ship is stuck, and you can kind of see some of that claustrophobic nature popping back uh, but really it's not something that is a through line throughout it is kind of not needed really and um, uh, this is actually part of the book that I didn't really love I, I read the first part and then I put the book down and it was a while before I picked it back up it didn't really grab me it wasn't something that had me super interested so I wish they had kind of just started without the prologue and jumped right in at chapter one one thing they try to do is they do try to make it feel like a Star Trek Discovery book. Pike is often updating Spock on what the Discovery is up to. Uh, they mention Spock and Burnham's mission to Sursa 3, which, uh, if you remember, was the first mission from uh, Desperate Measures. That was the first book. Pike also constantly mentions and is thinking about Vina, which is from the whole Talos 4 storyline. So they pick that back up in Season 2 of Discovery, and it kind of ties nicely. But one of the problems I guess they had with this book was, was that they had to think of some reason why the biggest, most important flagship 
would not be in the Klingon War back in Star Trek Discovery Season 1. So what they come up with is that the Enterprise is in this faraway nebula. It's looking for planets and doing some investigative stuff because it's their best science ship. Which I don't mind, actually. I think that it's it's a pretty good reason, and the way that it kind of gets lengthened out over the course of the year kind of does work. So um, I have to give kudos to the author for that, because I was kind of going into it thinking that it was going to be a lame reason, but they do a pretty good job of that. Um, and essentially, uh, the book starts where they are going to try to leave the nebula, make contact with Starfleet, and, and kind of find out what's going on, see if they maybe should head home. And while they're leaving, they get hit with a photon torpedo. So uh, they have to drop their shields to go through this very thick part of the nebula. They get hit with a photon torpedo. And then when they contact Starfleet, Starfleet tells them that they have the Klingon war under control and that they want the Enterprise to stick it out in the nebula to go back in and investigate who had shot the torpedo. This leads us to what you think is going to be the main villains. Uh, the species is called the Lurians. They're kind of like the placards from uh, the next generation. Remember, make me go fast. And I think that it is they're they're set up to be kind of an interesting alien species they're not very well educated they don't speak very well but the leader is kind of smart and that's the reason why he is in command is that he has a bigger vocabulary and stuff so it seems like they've only got one torpedo this is their big plan is they're going to try to take the enterprise and they're just essentially pirates right when you kind of start to learn about them uh, they get uh, boarded by the boundless and these are basically guys in big mech suits so i'm kind of envisioning you know boba fett or halo or gears of war and they come in and they kidnap them and so it's kind of a, a fake out the lurians are not actually the main villain the main villain are going to be these boundless warriors um, and that's where uh, they get introduced to the story once the boundless are introduced we get our first kind of side plot of the story. That section is uh, where Spock and another character named Connolly, as well as some other Starfleet people, they're surveying a planet. The Enterprise gets distracted and the Boundless come and kidnap Spock and Connolly and a couple other nameless Starfleet people. Um, this is where they go full Gears of War slash Halo slash whatever, mech suits. Um, Spock and Connolly are placed into these mech suits that they can't control um, the mech suits need to have a, a human person or have to have some sort of uh, you know living person inside of them in order to be able to work but basically they're automated in the sense that the boundless can control when when they fight and what they do so um, they're put into these space suits and then it's revealed that uh, the boundless have this endless fight against the Rengu, and the Rengu are basically disgusting, evil aliens that have, uh, you know, they're basically giant insects with pincers and, you know, a bunch of legs and things, and so once they're kidnapped, they're forced to fight these Rengu on different planets, and they basically bounce around, and it's, you know, a fight that's been going on for centuries, essentially. This is very, very, very Gears of War-like, Halo-like. I was kind of cringing a little bit. I, I don't know how much I loved it. it. It really felt like it was kind of a ripoff of other things that I've seen. But, I mean, I was kind of going with it. It was a little bit interesting because uh, we get a little sprinkle of 
you know, where this originated from, where do these beings come from? And basically, you know, without the boundless, these creatures may kind of seep out of the nebula and take over the galaxy and things. So there were some intriguing parts, but I just didn't like the idea of having, you know, the beloved Spock character in a giant mech suit fighting aliens on these, you know, random planets. It felt really odd to me. Eventually, Spock does figure out that uh, each of the suits are governed by this one particular part, and he's able to basically deactivate it using a welding torch, and he escapes, you know, the, the confinement. He's still confined to the suit, but he ends up getting free from the Boundless, and he kind of ends up drifting through space and eventually landing on an ice planet, which um, he is stuck there for weeks or months at a time. Uh, these suits can keep you alive and they can do medical things to you, they feed you, they, they can do a lot of things, uh, but he figures that he's only, you know, has a few weeks or a month left without some sort of regeneration. So while he's on this ice planet, he uh, kind of walks around a lot. He, he does some investigation stuff on, on the snow. Um, he can make contact with the Enterprise at one point, so him and, and Pike are, are chatting back and forth which is kind of good um but you can tell that he is losing faith you know he, he's trying to meditate he's trying to stay positive and things but he is you know he, he's really kind of suffering from the isolation of, of being on this ice planet um eventually he gets to a point where he uh you know he gets to this one volcano uh that he he was drawn to that place originally for um and we get I guess the probably the biggest connection to Star Trek Discovery season two because you know when he is down and out and he's suffering from all this isolation sickness he is visited by the Red Angel and so um, they mentioned that he had had these nightmares from before his childhood and everything uh, but he actually contacts and and has a, a mind meld with the red angel it's a very short little section it's maybe a page or two but definitely interesting that they tried to tie that part into the uh, into this particular book um, they also mentioned that after that happened was really close to when the uh the seven signals are released as well which i thought was kind of cool Meanwhile, on the Enterprise, they get stuck between a big battle between the Boundless and the Rengu. Uh, some of the people from the Enterprise, including Spock, actually, they make a deal with Cormorant. She's the, the main leader of the Boundless, that uh, they will help her capture the Enterprise for its technology as long as she promises to let uh, all of their people go. Right when they're about to attack... There's also a bunch of Rengu forces. The Enterprise essentially gets stuck in the middle of the battle. All hell breaks loose and eventually Pike and Number One decide that the best thing to do is to do an emergency saucer separation. Now, I had kind of forgotten that the uh, this Enterprise could do it, but it is actually mentioned in uh, one of the original series episodes that it can separate. So uh, it's only done very rarely. It wasn't uh, quite as sophisticated as it was during the Next Generation era. But uh, what happens is, is that Pike uh, and the saucer section uh, end up getting separated and they end up on um, like a methane moon uh, flipped upside down in dire situation and then number one is in the rear part of the ship and uh, it, they kind of drift into a nebula where a bunch of Rengu are also attacking them uh, so they're in a dire situation as well 
I'll talk about Pike and the saucer part of the ship first because it was probably my least favorite section of the book. Uh, it's mostly just Pike and some of the other crew members, uh, including Non from uh, Star Trek Discovery Season 2, trying to get the ship back working and get them off of this moon planet that they're stuck in. Um, they're upside down, which I guess kind of adds another wrinkle to it, but they are stuck kind of in this methane lake. And so they need to figure out how to get the ship upright, but then also off of the moon and back into space. Uh, one of the problems that Pike has is that his chief engineer is a brilliant scientist, a brilliant mind, but he's not really great at a lot of the applied stuff. So he is working through that problem while uh, we are trying to figure out how to get off this moon. Uh, Pike does get in contact with Spock because Spock's ice world is nearby. So they are kind of communicating and they're sharing some resources and sharing ideas and stuff which was nice but it wasn't anything too crazy it wasn't super engaging at this point the boundless and the rengu is the most interesting part of the book eventually pike and his head engineer figure out that they can flip the enterprise like a bar of soap uh, on the lake if they just kind of do the thrusters the right way which was kind of a neat idea but then the second part and the part that I really didn't like I cringed through this whole section was they do a die another day-esque surfing scene where they literally take the saucer section of the Enterprise and they drive it on the lake and create a wave in front of themselves so that they can shoot off of it right at the exact same time that they hit their impulse drive and they basically rocket off of the planet back into space which yeah they could have definitely done without that because it was absolutely ridiculous um, and I really didn't enjoy that section that does mean though that they can get to Spock and of course right when he's about to freeze to death and die they're able to beam him and his uh, mech suit up to the saucer section of the ship now, in the tail part of the ship, we have number one, whose name is Una, and she is basically taking command of the back half of the ship, which still has most of its weapons and things. Uh, there are Rengu fighters nearby, and they keep attacking the ship, and they are using shuttles and the phasers that they have to push them off, fight them off. Uh, and eventually she realizes that she's not going to be able to keep doing this forever because each time they send more and more. So she sends out a shuttle and they beam one of the creatures into the brig. Once she has them in the brig, they are kind of doing some studying and stuff like that. And they realize that these creatures maybe don't see or hear, which is one of the reasons why they haven't been able to communicate yet. And so she lets one out and she thinks that she's going to be able to communicate with it. And of course, immediately this thing attacks her. So it runs up to her straight away, wraps its insect legs around her, and it has this kind of protrusion that it jams into the back of her head. Now, she doesn't die, but she kind of goes comatose and the rest of the crew is left to... I guess kind of figure out what they need to try to do. Um, they decide that they're going to try and leave uh, the nebula and contact Starfleet, which I mean wouldn't be the worst idea in the world. But right before that happens, Una wakes up and it turns out that the Rengu are actually uh, able to communicate with bipeds as long as they have enough time to connect 
to them. So because they've been connected for a certain period of time, now she has the ability to communicate with them and it turns out that, you know, they're intelligent life and that they were just misunderstood. So this leads to her asking the Rengu to go and get the saucer section, which they do. So they go over and they bring the saucer section back to where the tail section is. Um, and we find out that, uh, yeah, these creatures are able to meld, I guess. Um, it, it's kind of ridiculous because they actually explain it like number one is walking around with one of these giant insects like attached to her. So its head is above her head and its legs are wrapped around her body. And I think she can even commute, can use the, the legs um, a little bit as well. It's a little bizarre. It's a little out there, but at the same time, it does get the two pieces of the ship back together and it reunites the crew. Um, and then this is pounded or it's connected with uh, Connolly is now going to lead Cormoran uh, into uh, taking the Enterprise back. So the Enterprise is now surrounded by all these different Rengu fighters and Connolly thinks that he is able to sneak on and he's either going to blow it up so that the Rengu don't have the technology or they're going to get the technology for themselves and more specifically the transporters because uh, they think that that might be the thing that they need in this war to kind of push them over the edge. So they go and they sneak onto the Enterprise and of course what they find there is Captain Pike in Spock's robotic suit. He's figured out how they work and how they're governed and so he freezes them in place and he takes them back to Kadavu which is the uh, home world of the Rengu as well as the Boundless. So this is the big reveal that uh, at one point in time the Rengu lived on the northern part of a planet and there were four or five different species that lived on the southern part um, including some of the main members of the Boundless and so eventually the Rengu came down started attacking the people of the south they left on transports and the Boundless were born and basically they have been just fighting this endless war trying to get back to Kadavu uh, ever since. And in the big twist, it was all just a big misunderstanding. So they get to Kadavu and it turns out that the planet is all barren. And uh, I guess there's all these different solar radiation storms. And now everybody that lives there lives on pods. And they have these Rengu that are attached and wrapped around them just like number one because they were trying to protect them all along. So when the Rengu came down from the north, it was because they recognized that the planet was changing and that the solar radiation was going to affect the people of the south. So they came down, they tried to connect with them using the same method, right? Wrapping them up and sticking them with the, with the proboscis. Um, and of course, the people of the south thought that they were being attacked and so they left on whatever spaceships they could and they've been fighting ever since and because they've never given enough time to communicate because it takes so long, they never realized that the Rengu were actually just trying to help. So um, it's kind of left in a bit of a strange spot because some of the Boundless are very happy and they are just they just want to go home and they want to you know go back to Kadavu, whereas others are kind of left a little bit uncertain, especially like the main characters that we see. So Comorant, I haven't really talked about a lot, but she's kind of the main villain. And there's another one, Baladon, who's a, a Lorian. They are 
kind of more for the fight. So I think that they have been living that life for so long that they are bound to it now, pun intended. So they decide that they're going to stay in the suits. The Enterprise gets put back together, even though it's in really, really tough shape, and they head back towards Federation space. Now, some kind of interesting little tie-ups that we get at the end of the book. Bok, because of his isolation on the planet and his interactions with the Red Angel, um, he ends up being kind of mentally unstable. So they drop him off at an institution, which, if you remember, at the beginning of Season 2, that is where he is. And Pike and uh, Number One are kind of talking about going back to space dock and fixing up the ship when Pike gets called to the bridge and, of course, there are seven red signals. So they tied it really nicely, actually, to um, where we see the Enterprise at the end of Season 1 and then through into Season 2. So they actually did a pretty good job with that. And it does have a satisfying finality once you kind of get that all the pieces are connected. Let's talk about the casting characters now. I think that I'll probably lose uh, most of my followers with my next statement, but... I mean, I'm not that crazy on Pike. I get that, you know, he's probably the best thing about Star Trek Discovery Season 2, but that being said, it doesn't say very much. Um, I don't really find him to be that engaging in this book, and I think that they kind of go to the well too often with, with Pike. He was only in the cage and he was in menagerie and he's maybe mentioned a couple other times so they feel like this necessity that they constantly have to be talking about talos for and they've got to be going back and talking about that one little thing that we know about him and i think that it just doesn't really work it kind of makes for an uninteresting character i also think that they tried to add in something new at the beginning with the you know the friend that passed away but it doesn't really come back and so it's really like they tried to add in a new piece maybe like claustrophobia or something like that and it just doesn't really ever pay off Una, or number one, is, is a pretty good character. Uh, I think that she's interesting enough. Uh, she does a lot in this book, so definitely she does more here than she does in uh, season two. But still, same thing. I, I mean, I, I, I get that they want to use characters that everybody remembers from the original series, but it's not as if you know we really knew that much about them or that were that connected to them. So I thought that she was good, but it wasn't really great. Uh, Spock is the next one. Um, I have to admit that with this particular Spock, I was envisioning the Zachary Quinto, uh, Ethan Peck version of Spock. I never for one second thought about Leonard Nimoy while I was reading this, um, which I mean, I guess they're going for, right? It is a Star Trek Discovery book. Uh, but that being said, I'm also of the mind that I, I've i seen enough Spock, right? We, we, we've had you know three seasons of the original series. We had you know, six movies, we have seen him pop up in Next Generation, we have seen him now in, in Star Trek Discovery, there's a million books and games and comics, I think I'm kind of spocked out, I know that he's the most beloved and the most favored character uh, that we have in Star Trek, but I mean at a certain point it's kind of like what more can you really do? with this particular character. I think that I would rather maybe see some new fresh characters rather than just going back to Spock again and again. Um, speaking of new characters, uh, one of the ones that they did bring in was Connolly, which they actually did a really good job with. Uh, they make a point that he's really into baseball and you know he's always using kind of baseball terms and nobody really understands what he's talking about, but he just does it anyway. He's kind of a gravimetrics scientist, but they purposely 
you know, send him on this mission because he's so bored. Like he doesn't really have a lot of stuff on the go on the ship, so he gets sent down into uh, you know this section, and uh, I think that it worked really well. Um, he is part of the book that I really liked, and his interactions with Cormorgan and Balderon are, are all pretty good. So Connolly was one of the characters that they did really well. One of the other characters is Non. So we see Non in uh, season two, and I think that I, most people agree she was really well done. In this book, they tried to make her seem really cool. I mean, it doesn't work. Uh, every time anybody, anytime she says anything, it always kind of has like a sassy ring to it, but it's kind of not funny. I think it's maybe meant to be funny, but it just isn't. Like a good example is when there's a section where the the ship gets flipped upside down and she's kind of feeling nauseous. And uh, anytime that anybody mentions food, she kind of keeps saying like, could we not? And, and then, you know, they mention it again and she's like, please stop mentioning the food. And it just plays kind of really hammy and cheesy. So I didn't really love that part of it. I think that they could have maybe either written some better dialogue or just kind of maybe cut some of that stuff out because it comes across as really cheesy. The two main villains are Cormagan, which is the female who runs the Boundless, and then Baladon is kind of like her right-hand man. Uh, she, it, he is the, the Lurian from the beginning of the book. Both are pretty interesting. They're driven for kind of two different reasons. Cormagan is, you know, one of the oldest surviving uh people she's been in more battles than anybody and she actually has been doing this long enough that she actually remembers some of the first people in the first waves that, that have been leading attacks uh, whereas Baladon just kind of sees this as a new opportunity so even though he's not really part of the species that were affected by the Renku he's kind of taking this fight as his own because he didn't really like his own species and they were always so small time and now this is kind of his opportunity to, to be big time and, and to go and fight and he really um, yeah he really kind of takes to it so both those characters are good um, they, they're interesting in their own right um, and their motivation is is really obvious and clear which I think uh, adds to their character and then I like at the end too when they finally get what they were hoping for right they wanted to take this planet back um, they realize that it is kind of you know there, there wasn't really a battle at all it was misunderstanding and so they are kind of left to maybe go and, and to be mercenaries or they even mentioned that they might go back and fight in the klingon war because um they just are so dedicated to fighting that they don't really know anything else on the production side of things, there's not a whole lot here. One of the things that's, that's really strange is that Connolly appears in the episode Brother. Uh, he's the very brash young upstart that they take with them on their away mission. And then he ends up getting killed in that little shuttle pod thing. Uh, that makes that whole thing a lot more disappointing. They spent a lot of time in the book to build up that character and to make you feel a certain way. And then I went back and watched the beginning part of Brother and it doesn't really feel like the same character and it actually feels like a huge waste to kill him off in Brother when uh, they set him all up in this book. So that's disappointing, but I mean, I guess it's a nice little tie-in. I like the fact that they had connected the beginning part of the season two discovery with the end part of this book they even mentioned that spock has a beard they tied in the red angel sightings uh, and they mentioned that he was institutionalized so they did do a good job in connecting those two threads if you were to read this book and then start season two it picks up right immediately afterwards which is is really cool 
Dr. Boyce is uh, mentioned throughout. He's the doctor on the ship, and he is in the tail section with uh, number one throughout the book. Uh, he is from the original uh, series episode, The Cage, which, nice little tie-in, again, little name drop. When Spock is on that ice moon, he mentions Scon, which is his grandfather. I think in Vulcan it literally means... A father of Sarek, so he names the moon after his grandfather. And there are a bunch of Star Trek Discovery name drops. So they mention Michael Burnham. Pike even asks Spock about Michael Burnham. Uh, they get some intel from Admiral Cornwell. And like I mentioned before, you do get updates on what's happening in the Klingon War every time there's a new chunk of the book. My favorite quote from the book is uh, Captain Pike quote it's when he is kind of having a little bit of back and forth between the members of the bridge crew and himself there's a section where Connolly says that the atmosphere is carbon monoxide nitrogen dust particles and less ammonia in this one uh, mostly formaldehyde and pike says that's fine i'm feeling ready to be embalmed today um, there's not a lot of great dialogue in this book but i mean that line kind of made me chuckle a little bit so that's why it gets my uh, pick for best line in terms of the whole book as a whole and just kind of my final thoughts if you were to just listen to this review it probably sounds a little bit crazy you've got uh, you know this gears of war halo esque fight you've got spock and other starfleet people in giant mech suits running around fighting aliens there's lots of battles where you know they need to you know shoot them and fight them and things and then to find out that if the aliens do get a hold of you they're going to stick this thing in the back of your neck and and try to kind of interact with you and that's how they communicate there's a lot of bizarre things but oddly enough i feel like john jackson miller kind of pulled it off and in, a, in, a, in another way it's very original series like um, just kind of done very big and very epic I think that this is exactly the kind of thing that you would see on an original series episode which is that you know you've got these two different species they're at war but it's all misunderstanding and it's the crew of the Enterprise that's going to kind of make them realize the errors of their way so um, I didn't really love it at the time but the more I got into it and the more that the pieces started connecting the mech suits didn't seem so bad and the Rengu didn't seem so bad and when I saw that they were starting to kind of piece it all together leading into uh, Star Trek Discovery Season 2 I could see what they were doing and I actually ended up kind of liking it uh, if you are a big fan of the TV series then this is definitely a good one to read leading into or in between the two seasons so uh, if I had to give it a rating out of five I would give it three out of five boundless fighters because the boundless do everything in fives there's five fighters to a carrier five carriers to a wave so I would give this one three out of five and that's it uh, for this edition of RTBR uh, make sure that you check back next time when we are going to look at the next book in the series which of course looks at Lieutenant Stamets and that is going to be Star Trek Discovery Dead Endless <laughs> Thank you.